0: You are listening to Checkbox Outreach, a podcast that showcases excellence and raises awareness of current issues from those who are directly impacted, but typically not at the table. Now, here are your hosts, Aaliyah Gaskins and Katie Leonard.
1: Hi, welcome to Checkbox Outreach. This is Katie.
0: And this is Aaliyah. And today we are joined by Iris Patton. And when Katie and I asked her what we were going to talk about, she said, we're here to talk about something fun. And then she said, let's talk about data, education, and school (laughs) reopening. And I'm not sure yet where the fun part comes in, but I assure you this will be the most fun conversation (laughs) you have ever had about data and education.
2: So welcome. I just met you, Aaliyah, but I think we're the three most fun African-American women that I know. (laughs) It's gonna be
0: good. Yeah,
1: for sure. So I'm super hype. Iris and I have actually um, been trying to work together probably for what, a year and a half now, (laughs) something. Um, But she's amazing, mother, data-driven, data-focused, strategic woman. But we actually met in graduate school at the University of Florida and i i was i think you were actually working on your phd though when i was doing my masters in planning I think so yeah okay. and i'm not going to lie i was a little intimidated by you because you were like the gis queen like and you'd be coming in and out of the gis lab and so gis geographic information systems it's the mapping platform that is used everywhere through esri and Literally, when I took the GIS class, I had to ask, Stanley Latimer who was the professor, <laughs> and anything he would teach, I would be like, can you explain this to me? Like, I'm in third grade, please, because I don't have any idea what you're doing or what you're talking about. And here you are, like, present, like presenting stuff, and you have posters. I mean, it was just amazing. So I've been in awe of you and your work for so long, and I'm just really, really excited for the conversation.
2: Oh, thank you. Which is kind of ironic because before this conversation, I was explaining to somebody what this was all about and telling them about you. And she was like, the woman I was speaking to was like, oh my gosh, we have to know her. We have to work with her. I was like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> trying to do this. Oh, it's
1: so great. And now we're going to bring Aaliyah with us. Like yeah. The boat is like going in full force.
0: I was about to say, I'm in awe of both of you. My <laughs> GIS skills are trash. So I'm like, teach me, teach me. And then Katie, I just love you and get to know so much about you in every one of these conversations. I will say at the end of the GIS
1: class on the final, we had to do a pipeline, like a proposed pipeline. And it had to like, you know, they give you the coordinates and at the end you hit submit. And if your pipeline is correct, then you get the A or whatever and you leave. And my pipeline actually correctly went through the state of Florida the proper way, and I was so proud of myself. Yeah, I actually (laughs) still have my GIS notes, by the way. Um, But Ira, so data, education, I'm geeking out already, but why is that important? Why is that something that we really need to be talking about hand in hand?
2: Sure. So, um, I got started in all of this, um, you know, like you mentioned back in grad school and it was funny because actually when I took my first GIS class in undergrad, I failed it miserably. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> yeah, so there's hope
2: funny. for all of us. There isn't. And so like I tell my students now, if there's hope for me and I'm standing in front of you, there's hope for you too. <laughs> and so, Um, But the idea is I was building these really cool tools for jurisdictions, for companies, to make them more efficient and to make them make money. Um, But what I saw was a real disconnect with um, the benefit of mapping and GIS and data in communities that needed them to help improve their own quality of life and build their own capacity. And so what we started to do, um, we being an organization, what we started to do is kind of explore, you know, what questions or information um, could we provide to communities uh, using mapping, um, using their own behaviors, um, using public information that's out there, um, what could we build that would help to actually improve regular people? So, what could we do to help pe- move people out of poverty or get people um, a higher quality of education or just you know um, increase the value of the education that that they um, that they have? So that's led us down several different rabbit holes, <laughs> and our current one is um, we have a mapping strategy that um, it's, a, it's a tool that provides data insight and intelligence um, to identify where investments should be made and interventions should be made to improve quality of life. And so that's kind of the big thing. And then out of that, um, we as an organization are focusing on a couple of specific priorities, one of which is we've developed this school reopening strategy and how it includes or involves data and information and mapping is that we have the ability to identify where these priority neighborhoods and vulnerable populations are. That, you know, everybody is talking about these, like, education pods and all sorts of other crazy. And, and it's, I don't knock it. I have a son, um, and I'm a single parent, and I am all about them because I still have to figure out how to juggle and educate my child at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> so yep. I am I am also guilty of, like, looking into these things. But where, we're, where I'm also coming from is saying, you know, I have – resources to take advantage of these things. I don't understand why everyone can't have these resources. And so how can we use these tools to figure out who needs these resources the most and then connect them with funding um, and and creatively using existing funding sources to provide them with just the same level of education um, as wealthy or privileged families can. And then at the same time, connecting them with, um, with organizations or teachers or interventions to also help them get what they need to do to get through this pandemic like the rest of us are.
1: So why mapping? Like, how is that powerful? Because it's all about
2: space, you know? And, and it's, it's this thing that, you know, we operate in space without ever considering how valuable it is. So if you think about it, if, so when I, I recently lived in Gainesville, Florida, and um, when I was there, I chose where I lived because of things that were important to me. So I wanted a neighborhood where I could walk, where um, there were trees, all of these things, like the environment and the space around me mattered. And my interaction of between me and that space was important. And so why mapping is important is because it actually... It allows you to analyze how you feel and what's important to these things around you um so these things that we take you know we take for granted i can actually quantify and measure and you know just by having a conversation with you um i can help pinpoint several things that would then help to quickly make you feel better but i mean space it plays a huge role in us because we change our behaviors based upon what's around us like When I had a really bad Starbucks habit, (laughs) it's not so bad now. I would, you know, I would change my route or my path just to make sure that I would hit one because I needed that that shot in the morning, right? (laughs) And then I moved to Gainesville and it wasn't Starbucks anymore, but it was that really good pastry shop. (laughs) So, but the thing is, like, but the environment and space, it, it's these interactions of all these things. And for me, I like measuring them and evaluating them. And it's just, it's just, it's just fun. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay, so now I'm geeking out. And now I understand why Katie said we all need to connect. Because <laughs> I would say that most of my work has focused on the intersection between place and space and health, and how, you know, where you live, not only impacts you know, what's around you, but those things that are around you that impact your access to opportunity and ultimately your physical, mental and social health. And I guess one of the things I want to dive into is on this show, we've talked a lot about the importance of equity and doing equity work. Mm-hmm. And I think it's easy for people to say, I get it. I understand we should do, you know, do things differently, we should target communities that are most in need, we should direct resources to those who are the most vulnerable, but when it comes to the practice of actually doing that work, I think a lot of people don't know what to do. They get lost. And one of the things you said is that your tool starts to bring in not just data, but also public information, begins to ask people questions, so can you walk us through a little bit of like what does that look like and how does it lead to a more equitable outcome?
2: Sure. So um, I'll go back to Gainesville again. So when I first moved to Gainesville... You don't and I call I it Gaines here. Vegas? I call it Gaines Vegas. Do you really? <laughs> <laughs> I, I can do that. What there? <laughs> Sorry.
1: <there>. I digress. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so when I first moved back, I found a beautiful neighborhood, beautiful house. Um, but there weren't a lot of people in that community that looked like me, Right. And then um, as I slowly got to know Gainesville, um, I realized that, like, I lived on the northwest side, but most of the black people lived on the east side. And as I started to know Gainesville more, I, I really wanted to live with people that looked like me for a lot of reasons. I was missing community. Um, and so as part of this idea of equity, you know, often it seems like it feels like there has to be a trade-off. You know, so why can't I live in a really nice place surrounded by people that look like me? Why do I have to choose one or the other? And what equity is to me with mapping is this ability to say, you know, here are the gaps between what's possible and what you have. How do we kind of create this this middle of that, you know? Um, So that at least, at the very least, you have access to it, easy access to it, if you so choose to live in that place or choose that thing to participate in. What our tools do is we first evaluate kind of what is, you know, where are what's this baseline of what people have access to and um, what the ability is to have power to make decisions that help them to move to that next step if they want to. And then if they don't, you know, well then what is missing from them? What's the magnitude of what is not there? Mm-hmm. So for example, um, let's say that I live in, you know, we put all this information together. So we've put in um, average incomes We've put in if you're a single parent, if you have access to health insurance, if you're on WIC, um, if you have parks in your neighborhood, um, if you if your community or population around you votes, um, what the crime rate is, all these things. And we have like 200 criteria that we look at in six different impact areas. And, you know, and so we put all this information together and we say, okay, you know, at the bottom of this, so basically where people have the worst of all of these conditions or, or don't have access to these conditions on the map, it displays where these places are and the best of these locations. So where people have full access to these things within a reasonable proximity, this is what, you know, people tend to think that they want um, or what we're trying to achieve, but what, and and so then, you know, the, the narrative out there now is to say, you know, I'm poor. And so what poor people want is to be Bill Gates. No, they don't want <laughs> <laughs> Well, poor people want, and I'm generalizing here and oversimplifying this, what they want is they just want to have access, easy access to these things. They want that middle ground. And so what our tools do is it helps to evaluate how do you get someone from below this middle to that middle point? And what's the magnitude of that? So if I'm making $12 an hour now – and it's hard for me to pay my rent, put food on my table, put my kids in a decent educational system. That's the bottom. That's what the bottom means. But the middle is, you know, I'm in a B school. doesn't even have, still have to be an A school. My kids are at a B school. I have food on the table every night. We can go out once or twice a week. My kids can participate in sports. I have access to either good public transportation or I have my own car. But I at least have access to these things. And I'm making a decent living wage. And so, what's the gap between that bottom and just the the middle of trying to survive? And our tools help to identify what that gap is. Who doesn't have access to those things to get them to the middle? And then again, you know, we connect them to we connect those individuals literally um, who don't have uh, to resources and interventions that actually help to improve their quality life of life if they're interested in it.
1: Yeah, and I love the you know when you look at mapping, it's not just saying, hey, here's a map, and we're gonna put a pin in. This is where this is the other side of the tracks, right? So Gainesville Thirteenth Street, I called it the Great Dividing Line, and you know the east side was where the black population was, and I lived in Northwest Gainesville as well when I was there. But you can add just like you said before, like all the different pieces that tie together. We've talked a lot on this show about the policies and the practices that have engineered where people have to live in their communities. So redlining, Aaliyah was talking about, when you look at, you know, where the red lines were drawn and where health outcomes are disparate. And just having the visual representation and having even the heat maps and letting especially our elected officials see it, so that way they can say this is where I live and this is where that, that gap is that you're talking about or this barrier is so... I think just such a powerful tool. I mean, and I would I actually we usually don't do more than one picture on our website, but I would like to get like a couple like just screen grabs of the maps that you're actually talking about just so people can see them and what we're saying and how you can actually communicate equity and communicate disparities
2: on on a map. No, you're right. And and it is and it is that visual piece. You know, we respond to when we see graffiti on a wall, you know, it either it's either beautiful because it's art or it's offensive because of what's been there, right? And so what we try to do with maps is we try to take the geekiness out of it in as many ways as we can. And and we create these illustrations because that's what they are that describe, you know, what people have and what they don't. But just like graffiti, we hope that it will we hope that it will touch the hearts of those who want to make a change with what they see and then also upset those who, who see now visually this system, um, this very lopsided system that they're a part of and they don't really know how to get out of.
0: Are there ways that you've been able to use your maps to push people, not just around increasing access, but like the quality of what you have? access to so I was thinking about when you talked about parks so it's one thing to say okay well if we look at this map we have a neighborhood that has a park and we have neighborhoods that don't have parks and so we can create more parks. but if the parks are not safe or they're not a place that people want to engage in then we've increased access but we haven't necessarily increased access to something people want to go to so if you I'm just curious if you could speak to that like tension between access and quality and how do you go the next step
2: Sure. So um, it's interesting you mentioned that. We worked on a project back in 2018 um, in St. Louis, and it was shortly after the Ferguson riots. And um, we're, the project, it was funded by, by Mellon Foundation, and um, we were working with Washington University. And our role was to create um, these maps, identified opportunity um, for, like, several impact areas. So it was housing, um, equity and justice, and I think, like, community health and empowerment or something. <laughs> and so um, typically, you know, we are physically not located in every single city that we do these maps for, but we establish relationships with local organizations for the very reason that you've just mentioned. Because it's one thing just to evaluate access. It's quite another to evaluate the quality of what's being provided. And so as one of our um, criteria is, you know, just access to maps, we completed the final maps. We gave them to WashU to kind of vet with their stakeholders. And the woman came back to me and she's like, Iris, these are wrong. And I was like, Taken aback, I was like, my work is never wrong. What are you talking about? <laughs> Like, do you know who you're talking to right now? <laughs> oh. and, so, and so she was telling us, and it was for that very reason, because we weren't evaluating the quality of these things. But that actually provided an opportunity for us to engage the community in a different way. And for, them, for us to teach them the value of data and maps and information, but then also to, to allow them to understand that there is also power in data. And so understanding that, you know, um, just because someone, a city councilman or whomever says, we gave you a map or we gave you a park, go away, that's not just it. You know, my park may just have grass, but if I go to the other side of town, they have, you know, a nice playground, they have a splash pad, they have all these things. They have shade sales. and that matters in quality of life and well-being and so what we try to do with all of our um with all of our maps that we do is uh to connect with local organizations to make sure that that we're truly reflecting what's there the other piece of the um st louis project which i love actually and i love learning things i mean you know i may be like taken aback at first when we're corrected but then i'm like oh that was a great idea Um, so the other thing Ferguson and st louis was that um one of the, as I mentioned, one of the things that we mapped for them was equity and justice. So we give them these maps and um, I think the final maps showed Ferguson like as an okay area with equity and justice. And and I didn't know, you know, here from there. And so the woman, um, our contact gets back to me and she's like, this is very wrong, Iris. We cannot put these out. Yeah. <laughs> What's wrong with this? and she's like these these equity and justice maps are just off, and so when I looked into it, we realized that in some areas, there is no good and bad it's bad and worse, and so what the maps actually allow us to do is to visualize beyond just conjecture of what we might hear in the news, but to to defensibly visualize you know what is wrong and the magnitude of what's wrong. So that's actually kind of been a cool thing about
0: yeah. the analysis. No, I was going to say it speaks to the importance of, you know, the story behind the data yeah. and how you can't sure. just, you know, post a map or you can't just invite people to a community meeting yeah. and present a number of facts and figures, but being able to engage in com- uncomfortable and deep and real conversation about what does this picture tell us, what does this number say, and yeah. then where do we go from there? And I think that's something people either – don't allocate enough time to do both like the storytelling and the conversation and the data collection, or they skip over it because they don't know how, but it's in that that I think is the meat of like, where are the solutions of where we go from here? Yeah.
1: So if I'm like, just, you know, uh, I'm listening to this podcast and I have my issue, if it's housing, if it's education, if it's transportation, whatever it might be, and I, I'm i able to work with you and get the data in a map format, like, what am I supposed, like, what, what do people do with it? Like, how do you really so, bring about change through that
2: vehicle? So we actually don't distribute our mapping products, and it's intentional. Um, so there are lots of fantastic mapping platforms out there. So PolicyLink is one. Um, enterprise Foundation has our enterprise partners um, with their opportunity map is another. Harvard has a fantastic one that's out. They're really great. The problem and reason why we don't do distribute our data like that is because um, – Due to privacy and some other concerns, um, most of their analysis is done, and the visualization is at the census tract level, which is a pretty big scale.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, What we found, when we do our analysis, it's typically, literally at the household level. So I can tell you, in in many cases, um, which household needs income help, needs food help, needs transportation help, whatever, right? Um, The problem is, given privacy, we can't publish that level of data. We could, but that would be ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> and you'd have a um, lot of lawsuits. So uh... there, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to reduce the number of attorneys that I yes. have in my life. Yes. <laughs> uh, but the um, but the problem though is that when you summarize these individual households and their issues or needs to the census tract data, if you only have one or two households that have a need in a census tract or in a given block or area then you lose their need because everybody around them is doing well and so <laughs> we don't publish it because then um, if we were to summarize this data at this block level or census track data census track level or whatever um you lose those um micro opportunities to actually help and improve individuals lives yeah and so the only way to actually um do this very intentional and directed investment and intervention, which is really the core of what we do. um, Because we believe, you know, we have this idea that if you think about it, every year poverty tends to get worse. Education tends to get worse because we are developing these strategies that are like um, large scale, you know, I'm going to fund a full school or fund an entire community. Right. And, but then we still have the same problems. Well, the problem is that you're like throwing spaghetti at a wall and hoping that you hit or that this money that you're throwing at it will somehow fix or hit whatever this small problem is. What we're saying is we're not going to release the data publicly because we want to make sure that we intentionally direct the dollars to those specific things that we know will actually make an impact and difference. And so um, that's why we don't push things out there. So if people want to know, you know, say if they say, hey, I have $250,000, which, by the way, I'm looking for. Um <laughs> if they have that, they're going to give it to you first. And then (laughs) Then, the idea is that we know um, which populations and in which communities to direct those funds to actually make a visible impact so that it's no longer throwing spaghetti at a wall, but we're actually hitting the center of a target.
0: So let's talk a little bit more about investment and how money flows into communities. Can you speak to, I think, Money scares people, I think, especially folks in our field of public health and urban planning. Like, we don't often have these conversations. So when you see your data, and let's say you're sitting across maybe from, I don't know, a local bank that has CRA requirements, or you're sitting near um, a foundation and they're looking for the best place to invest, like, what does that conversation look like? What are you talking about? How are you making the case for, like, where that money should flow and how?
2: sure um so the CRA conversation and banks honestly is um those are the ones i really look forward to because i usually go into them knowing that they aren't going to fund me Because <laughs> <laughs> and, and and actually and this is a terrible thing to say especially because we are looking for funding but but typically um our investors are very unique people they aren't your typical philanthropists and investors and the reason is because, um, unfortunately, philanthropy has become a competition. It's, it's as competitive as McDonald's and Burger King. You know, you have all of these organizations who are trying to get the same pool of money. And yes, they want to do good and their mission is good and they are doing work. But at the same time, they have a responsibility to employ people, to keep their lights on and to just keep being competitive, um, somewhere along the way they lost, there's been a, um, it, there's been a, um, a redirection <laughs> of of what philanthropy and, um, social service is actually all about. So in these meetings with CRAs or with banks, and I'm saying, Hey, you know, if you contribute, actually a great example is Chase. They're like my big fish. But <laughs> <laughs> They
1: just reload. Like they came to the D they weren't in the DC area for years. I think it was, I don't know why I don't want to make an assumption, but, They came with a vengeance. Like as soon as it's like as soon as somebody told them they were allowed to be here, they're on every corner downtown. Like it's crazy. I'm like super impressed. (laughs) And they have a new concept of like how they operate where it's not even like a real bank when you go inside.
2: Yeah. yeah. The reason why they're in D.C. because of the private capital that's there. And so that's, I mean, DC, because of the private capital that's there, as well as the poor people, there's value in both of those groups oh. um, because banks make their money off of the poor, even though they need the deposits of the wealthy. It's a fun little- I was like,
1: just sp- talking about fees and how banks make money off of fees and interest rates and those, what do they call when you go negative? I, I should know, like, this no, isn't like I'm no- too good, like my bank account's never been negative, <laughs> <laughs> Can't like make. an overdraft fee? overdraft fees, yes. <laughs> let me just be clear, I'm not too good. Um, but overdraft fees are crazy, and they let people go so negative with overdraft fees.
2: It's ridiculous. It is, but yeah, there's that's a whole other yeah. Podcast yeah. Sorry, other but no, it's okay. But the idea with um with with those groups is so, for example, Chase right now um, committed like, you know, half a billion dollars or something ridiculous um, to racial justice and those types of groups across the U.S. over the next couple of years. And they've been doing a lot of like community development work, you know, for quite some time. But I'll actually a great story. That is true. So every year Chase puts out this um, this Advancing Cities grant. And in the grant, they ask people to, you know, pitch what they want to do. And they'll, Chase will fund them like 10 to 15 million dollars to do it over like three to five years. So the first year this came out, or the first year that we applied for it a couple years ago, we tried to do it and um, we tried Sorry. to do it and we realized oh that um, we realized that our strategy would actually is the, our strategy would actually fix community development, and that's not what they were looking for. What they're looking for are ideas that not to say that they don't want to help communities, they do, but they're looking for ideas that um, you can't assess impact. Um, objectively in (laughs) and that are like checkbox
1: impact they're trying to check a box oh shocker thank
2: you yeah yes that's what we're here for checkbox outreach yeah and hopefully they won't like totally like blacklist me and like totally close (laughs) off
1: we were her dream (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> oh, how the mighty have fallen. I know. But no, but that's essentially what it is. And so typically, so they'll do, and, and not to say that all banks are like this, and not to say that all Chase is like this, but they have philanthropy wrong. And and so even for this to fulfill their CRA requirements, um, they'll pay for chicken dinners, for nonprofits. And that is the checkbox for them to for contributions. Because if you think about it, if you consider the real money that has been invested in communities, I would love for anybody, for somebody to tell me, why do we still have poor people? Right. Or why do we still have the growing number of poor people that we have? Yeah. Explain that to me. Why is it that in the midst of this pandemic and the racial justice um, movement, that's kind of this resurgence, We have billions of dollars, basically, that has been um, donated. We have um, billions of dollars in impact investing. We have billions and billions of dollars that is put toward um, community giving, but nothing changes. To me, that's a system that does not want to change. And in my opinion, and I really feel like I'm just totally killing my company at this point, (laughs) but (laughs) in my opinion... It's because um, those who have the wealth and who have the power are interested, like you said, it's checkbox impact. It's checkbox giving. But there's this fear of if I give and if there really is change and if equity really is achieved, will I lose my power? Mm -hmm. And it's the fear itself that's, I think, um, preventing the American society and and several other societies around the globe from actually improving.
1: I say that all the time. It's There's a difference between charity and empowerment. And people yes. love to give charity because charity, I can write my check, I can leave my gala, I, I look nice for the night, and I can pat myself on the back because I help the poor people that they're that yeah. this causes for. Empowerment yeah. is I'm at this table, I make this much millions in dollars, or you know this is my capital, and I'm bringing people to that table with me. That's true empowerment, and that conversation is different. That giving is different. That volunteerism is different. And people, it's a threat. Because Because if I bring you to my level, now you're competing with me or they think you're competing with me for those same resources. And that's not true. Like you said, there's billions and billions of dollars out there for everybody to win.
0: So, yeah.
1: Please don't get me started.
0: (laughs) I <laughs> so would even take it a step further because it's not just I would say empowerment is not just I'm bringing you to the table with me but I'm actually yielding some of my power so that you can make yeah, the yeah. decision around yes. where that money is going to go I think yes. if we talk about the billions of dollars you're speaking to the reason why we haven't had change is because there are people who are not from these communities don't look like these communities never have to live or set foot in their community making the decisions about how much will go who it will go to when it yeah. will go to and how it will go there and so i think upending that whole system is basically upending capitalism okay. at its minus i'm and super I, excited I'm and ready i as a country. I think we
1: should um, just right now just pilot something called checkbox impact because checkbox outreach is a play on people trying like doing checkbox outreach and because I'm petty that's why we're called checkbox outreach so checkbox impact but actually have a pilot where we take a community or take a census tract and we're like this is what it really this is what true I mean this is what you're doing but if we like have the so conversation it. that it's both the top down and the bottom up Approach that has to that has to be a part of it. Like we have to empower people to have that upward mobility in their income, and then have you bring in the heat with the data and guiding where the money is going to go. It has to be an and and conversation.
2: It does, and it's funny because like I was um, back in December, I was um, I was listening to NPR, and I heard the I think the CEO of Ford Foundation, and I'm again like killing myself because I'm trying to get money from them, but that's another <laughs> story. <laughs> <laughs> so. I'm, I'm listening to NPR, CEO of Ford Foundations on there. And at this point, I didn't know he was a black guy, which it shouldn't matter anyways, but I'm just going to throw that out there. <laughs> and, so, and so, and I promise you, I have not been drinking. Um, <laughs> she's not in Gaines Vegas right now, guys. I I am not. I am not. Um, but he's he's there saying, you know, we need to do philanthropy different. We really, you know, Ford is committed to figuring out ways to, like, um, evaluate impact in different ways. He goes on and on and on for these little 15 minutes of his segment. And, you know, and it's funny because at the time I was actually in this Uber all the way to an airport. And in the back of the Uber I'm screaming, that's me! I've been doing this for three years. And so, But the thing is, like, you, there the other thing that I found in our own personal journey is that um, the problem is that there are a lot of little people who have the answers to big people problems, but there's no easy way of getting to the people with the money and with the, um, influence, um, to actually say, I can fix your problem, yeah. <laughs> you know? And, and so then we go around and around and around and we end up bootstrapping ourselves. I am totally about this checkbox impact. Yeah. Tell me where we, what you want.
1: <laughs> we are doing this. But it's the same business. So when you look at business and you look at minority business and you look at women minority business owners and the the barriers to access to capital and being taken seriously, it, that that's it through and through. And you have really great change makers and leaders and thought leaders out there that literally just can't get their foot in the door or they get their foot in the door and their ideas are taken in a yeah. private capacity and publicly those those people are not part of the conversation. And so we have to change the game and I'm just a firm believer that you do that through capital.
0: Yeah. But also you get to the table or you get in the door and I'll speak for myself, not, not having been in those rooms, when I'm in those rooms, I'm not going to be the one that's like, Hey guys, I really don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what's happening here, but still fund me. Like nobody's going to say that. And I think it comes to, we've talked about this on this show, like, what are the networks that we are creating? Who are the people we're getting exposed to? Who are the mentors we're connecting with in order to be able to build those relationships and get connected to influencers so that when we're in the room, we can ask the questions we need to ask. But we can also be in a position that's like, I know how to navigate this shit better than you do. So I'm actually the one you've been waiting for versus let me sit and be quiet and listen because I'm actually not even sure if I should be here.
1: Yeah, yeah. I am super excited. I outside of so I outside of Checkbox Impact volume volume the volume 2 of the Checkbox series. I really think that is something that's viable and if there's somebody out there we have a lot of listeners who are in education, in housing, in transportation, just in any community development space, like if you have some money to throw at a situation, like let us solve the problem for you. Like let us put together a new narrative in a new way that a new way forward. But outside of checkbox impact, what do you need right now? Like with what you're working on with education, with what you're working on in COVID, like what's your real ask?
2: Sure. So there are two priority strategies that we're doing right now. Um, One is um, there are lots of There are lots of uh, school districts and communities around the country um, because we're in this, you know, kind of phase of life right now where schools are supposed to be reopening in the next couple of weeks to next month. And everyone's trying their hardest to figure out how to reopen safely. And um, not just me, but also a group of fantastic partners that we have, we've figured out a strategy that we believe will work. And it's kind of the best of all of these little pieces. And that's essentially what Pivot does is we're like, like, we take this like 10 million piece puzzle box (laughs) and we throw it on the ground, And then we figure out how to put all the pieces in the right order to actually make a beautiful picture. Puzzles stress me out.
1: (laughs) I hate puzzles. I cannot do puzzles. Like I just, you said that in this like, feeling inside of my body was like, "Mm -mm, no, nope, I'm out. That's why I can't do IKEA furniture either. I can't overwhelming stress. No,
0: my husband was like, "We need to get like a five thousand piece puzzle for our son." And I was like, first of all, our son is not even three months old. (laughs) Second of all, that sounds like the most boring activity ever." So I bought a puzzle that has like ten pieces. like, we will start here, and we never need to go bigger. (laughs) But sorry to interrupt. (laughs) You need a new metaphor for your pitch. Apparently,
1: we're (laughs) triggered. We're triggered, Iris. (laughs)
2: But we figured out how to do school reopening safely. That's the bottom line. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And we have a strategy around it. And that's the first one. The second priority that we have is uh, our goal. It, like in 2018, David Brooks had this article in the New York Times where he was talking about how Canada was able to reduce poverty and um, sustain this reduced poverty level. And he was like, I don't understand why the U.S. can't do it. And again, just like my NPR moment in the back of the Uber, I was sitting in my living room I was like, I know how to do this. <laughs> we have the tools. And so with our data tools, um, we are actually also working with communities to help reduce poverty in the next three years, or over three-year period by 20 which is huge. But again, with our dedicated and directed um, data tools, we know how to do it. So given between these two strategies and and priorities, um, we're actually looking for an investment of $250,000 for each of them um, to demonstrate them in a location of your choice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is like, I don't know, like the Wheel of Fortune or something. I don't know. Anyways, (laughs) but you give me money instead of me giving you. But anyways, um, but no, but we have... (laughs) We have have a couple of pilot cities that we're working with. One is Tucson, Arizona, um, and the other is uh, Cape Town, South Africa. And so in those pilot cities, there are actually organizations that came to us. We only work in places where we're approached. Um, So there are folks that came to us, said, hey, we have a problem. And we're like, hey, we have the tools to help you. Um, We just need to find the funders. Um, We have the data to also kind of create the narrative to justify why your help is needed in your location and where to um, actually do the interventions. We just need the funding to do it. And so that's what we're seeking now is to get the funding to do it.
0: If you were in front of a decision maker, and that could be going back to the banks, philanthropy, it could be elected officials, like what would you say to them or what would you encourage them to un- that they need to know or understand about why this type of tool or this type of work is needed and like where they should put resources to it?
2: Sure. So um, the the huge value behind our tool is that it's not just um, corporate corporate social responsibility or charitable giving. It's not just you giving out. The way that our strategy works is that, yes, you're writing a check for some public good, but we work with you to actually achieve an extremely high return on investment from the money that you get. So, for example, there's a utility um, who had... um, they had an issue with low paying or uh, customers who they often got, they were frequently delinquent and they often had uh, high rates of uh, turn ons and turn offs. And so it was costing the utility money. But at the same time, this utility was giving a substantial amount of money to nonprofits in town to do community good. And so I was like, you're, you're paying out money to do community good, but you're not reaping any of the benefits of this because you're having, you know, this problem with people not paying their bills and you're actually losing money. And to me, As a business owner, that doesn't make any sense because at some point you're going to get to a place where you can't give money out to help these nonprofit groups, which then causes even bigger problems. So what if I solved your um, or addressed your delinquent customer problem that would help to increase your revenues and at the same time. Um, was able to use these increased revenues and this money that you're giving out to help increase the return on investment for what you're giving to the urban leagues or the community food banks or whomever. And that's basically what our strategy does, is it there's a business model side to it, which is the return on investment, um, that helps to address some type of business problem that they have. But on the other side of it, this corporate social responsibility money that they may be already be giving – Um, we help to, um, we help to, uh, monetize what the higher return on investment is from cost avoidance, you know, improved community. Um, we show benefits on both sides and that's kind of what's different about us than a lot of, not a lot of, but all groups that are out there. I
0: love it. I love it. I was going to say, if folks want to get in touch with you and work with you, how should they do that? Call me. Um, <laughs> this is a show where people love to give out their phone numbers. <laughs> uh, so, my phone number is 520
2: 433 0278. Only call
1: if you're serious about um, funding a project and changing the world and having serious non checkbox impact.
2: Yes. <laughs> exactly. Because I will checkbox the end button on my phone. I'm kidding. <laughs>
0: Iris, this has been,
1: I mean, I could literally just keep the call recording for forever because I know we could, the three of us together could talk about these issues and coupling the data with the impact and with the passion. And I'm just so excited to know you. You're so smart. You're so brilliant. And thank you for taking the time and sharing your brilliance with us on Checkbox Outreach.
2: Oh, thank you guys. This has been so much fun. See, I told you, Aaliyah. It was fun. It was fun. At least to us. Who cares
1: like if nobody else likes it, right?
0: <laughs> it's time for action. Checkbox Outreach is more than a podcast and simply putting a check in a box. This is about impact and moving the needle. Aaliyah and Katie, what are the next steps?
1: All right, Aaliyah. I get so excited whenever I talk to anybody in the community development space, but I always get super hyped in talking to Iris because I feel like I'm talking to myself in a lot of situations. <laughs>
0: So basically, you just love talking to yourself. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) I did feel like I was talking to my long lost twin or like my soul sister.
1: Yeah. (laughs) She's
0: she's the triplet in, in this group here.
1: Yeah, for sure. So what I mean with in talking to our triplet, what were some of your takeaways?
0: So I don't want to be repetitive because I feel like we have talked about the connection between place and health many times on this show. And so for me, that is the underlying takeaway that where you live matters and the conditions, whether they be the physical conditions, the economic conditions, the social conditions, all of that impacts your health. And I think what Iris pointed out is if you still don't get it, there are lots of tools out there, especially really neat mapping tools to help you understand sort of what that looks like in your community. So I guess like three that I often look at, PolicyLink has the National Equity Atlas um, which I find a really great tool to kind of understand how different social determinants of health show up. Um, Esri is a tool that it sounds like Iris knows back and front. I have to admit that in planning school, that wasn't my best class around GIS mapping. But Esri has some great tools to help you map community and understand kind of the distance to healthy food, um, resources to affordable housing to map poverty again many of the indicators we've talked about others of my go-tos are county health rankings and roadmaps and community commons as I was thinking about resources I realized a month ago I asked you to give me all your old books because I'm trying to read a book a week and even though our listeners can't see us I feel like Vanna White but after Iris (laughs) I found this book The Geography of Opportunity, Race and Housing Choice in Metropolitan America. And I feel like this was another clearly oldie, but goodie, um, that also talks about just how so many policies and practices, most of which rooted in race and discrimination, have shaped our urban landscapes and how... Specifically, they've shaped our access to housing. And so this one was another really good nugget if you're looking for something to pair with the visual aspect to really go deep into what those policies were and how um, where we live shapes our access to opportunity and wealth and many of the topics we've talked about on this show. Did I give
1: you Ryan Gravel's Where We Want to Live? Mm -mm. oh well that's another really awesome book because so he is the the visionary for the Atlanta Beltline so his master's thesis became the Atlanta Beltline and so it's just really looking at how that was supposed to be an interconnected multimodal you know placemaking vehicle and it ended up being a, a vehicle for gentrification in a lot of instances to where the housing that was available near the Belt Line and was close to transportation was, you know, people couldn't afford it. Like people got pushed out. And so that's another really good resource. But I think going back to just the episode, the importance of data and using data in a meaningful way and not using data to tell the story that you want to tell. So actually look at the qualitative and the quantitative data together. The second piece is Actually, using the tools that we have and having that return on investment on them. So, mapping is very, very powerful to tell that visual story. Um, the tools of focus groups or going out and engaging with the community, we again have to rethink how we put these things together and rethink how we really make impacts and use data for impact in the communities that we serve.
0: Absolutely. And I think what Iris talked about really is how there has to be the marriage of the two. So we can't just do a map for map's sake. We have to look at that map and say why. And it's through asking why and then bringing other voices to the table to understand the story behind that data. I think that's how we then understand what people are experiencing and facing where they live and then how do we shape policies and practices that are actually responsive to that.
1: That's it so. right there. I mean, that's, it's the policy piece, and the data has to inform policy, and that's also where we need to hold our policymakers accountable is actually using the data that we're continually gathering, not data from 2014, 2012, but current, as current data as we possibly can use, using that to inform decisions but hold people to a higher standard.
0: Amen. I almost said mic drop and then earlier, but then I kept confusing it. I was like, pin drop. And I was like, that's not what I want to say.
1: Nobody cared. You could hear a pin drop. (laughs) We'll go with mic drop. Thanks, Aaliyah. (laughs) Thank you for listening to another episode of Checkbox Outreach. Our episodes are available on our website, on iTunes, as well as Spotify. We can also be found on Twitter at Disrupt Outreach.